Last week we started our series, Authentic, the DNA of Real Disciples. Uh, and uh, the passage we're going to look at today, as he mentioned in Luke chapter 9, um, I just want to share with you before we get started here that this is a passage that's really near and dear to my heart. In fact, if I were to think back centuries ago to my very first sermon, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, <laughs> okay, it was only Massachusetts, but it was pretty far away. Um, so my, the pastor of my church, I was in Bible school. I had just taken homiletics, which is where you learn how to preach. And so I'd come home for the summer, and the pastor said, Stuart, why don't you preach on this Sunday night service? And I was like, great, thank you, pastor. And I was like, <laughs> like, what do I do? What do I say? What, what passage of Scripture do I do? How do you do that? How do you pick which scripture? You know, no topic given, just pick something and preach on it. So I prayed, and I read, and I read, and I prayed, I prayed, and I read. And then, so uh, I picked one of the most difficult passages of the Bible, which we're about to read right now. Isn't that great? <laughs> one of the most, cha- not difficult in the sense of it's really super big words or anything like that, but it's a, it's a concept that Jesus is getting across that the first time you read it, it kind of might hit you one way, but as we go through it and kind of unpack it today, I think we're going to find there's a lot there, and it actually says some things that really are very relevant to you and I today. Okay? You ready for that? Now, I've got to tell you also before we get started that when we set up the schedule and, and Pastor Phil asked me to speak and, and there was this passage of Scripture, I was like, yes, I'm excited about that. I didn't realize that it would be the same weekend as we'd be celebrating uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Tomorrow's MLK Day, right? And so uh, this week as I was preparing, I was thinking, I was reading through Scripture and studying, uh, I was reminded of his life and, and how, what his life was about. And someone who was a, a minister and a Christian, and the commitment that that man had to see his society be different than what it was, to see it to become more, more biblical, to become more like Christ would want it to be, more fair, more just. Are, are you tracking with me on that? And I thought, wow, what, a, what an example, what a weekend to preach about. What is a, a real disciple? A real disciple takes up and follows Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. You ready? All right. Now, we think about this word disciple. First, we've got to put one thing out of the way. Isn't a disciple, some people might say, the same thing as being a Christian? I mean, what's the difference? You've got the word believer, you've got the word disciple, you've got the word Christian. Aren't they all kind of synonyms? Aren't they kind of saying the same thing? And as we're trying to say here today, Let's say, what, what does Jesus say about the definition of a disciple? Let's look at Luke chapter 9. Open your Bibles. We'll start in verse 21 and go to verse 27. Luke chapter 9. Be here on the screens, hopefully in your Bible as well. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Now, that's a great opening, isn't it? All right? So, hey, I'm here. The Son of God's here, but don't tell anybody about it. Now, you've got to wonder, what is going on here? What's the big secret? Okay? So let's keep reading. He says this, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He goes on, he will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Now, if you read further on in Scripture, and I know many of us have, we know that when Jesus does go to the cross and he dies, what does disciples think? They think that's the end, right? They forgot what he said right here. This thing that he said, hey, don't tell anybody about me, and here's something I'm going to tell you, and he tells them what's going to happen to him. 
He goes on. Then he goes and says to the crowd. So that was said to the disciples. And now he says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower. Now when those people got up that morning and decided to go after Jesus and listen to him, what do you think a lot of them are thinking? I want to follow Jesus, right? I want to hear from him. I want to be near him. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Wow. We'll have to talk about that sentence right there. If you try to hang on to your life, Jesus says, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone's ashamed of me and my message, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And Jesus ends this little section here. He says, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Can we take a moment and pray? Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts and our ears to understand what you're saying in these words from your scripture, Lord, that you'd open up our spirits, Lord, and pour us the truth that you wanted the disciples to know that we'd understand it too. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, all right. So Jesus has got these really challenging, difficult things right here he just said. He said, hey, if you want to follow me, you got to die every day. So who wants to do it? Right? I mean, isn't that what he says here, right? Okay. So we got to understand what's going on here, what's being said here. And so let's break down all that Jesus said in this passage into three signs of an authentic disciple, of someone who's truly following Jesus Christ. So let's look at our big idea for take up and follow. The idea is that being an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ, here in your notes, pull out your pen, let's fill in the blanks here. Being an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ is about who he becomes in your life and how you follow him. Being a disciple is not optional, it's not immediate, it's a lifetime journey of becoming like him. It's not about expecting to fulfill your priorities. Instead, following Jesus as a disciple is all about who he becomes in your life and how you receive from him and how he transforms you. Those are the three signs that Jesus gives us in those passages. Let's see how this, beco- how this works out. You'll see in your, in your notes there, I also gave you John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He must become greater and greater but I must become less and less. To understand what Jesus is actually trying to get at in this passage we've just read, it's all going to be about more of him and less of us. Let's look at what that really means. First sign of being an authentic disciple is, number one, setting a new priority. Who is Jesus to you? The key word here is priority, the priority of who Jesus is. The passage we just read, Jesus said, Turn from your selfish ways. Now, Jesus has some tough things here. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 8, he tells the same story Luke just told us, but he adds a detail. And he tells us that when Jesus goes into the part we talked about, the Son of Man is going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. Mark tells us that Peter takes Jesus aside from the other disciples at that moment, and he rebukes him. Okay, you got that right there? Jesus is giving this incredibly important announcement about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. 
Where in the world is Peter coming from? I mean, who does Peter think he is? Think about it, right? Why in the world does Peter think he has the right to take Jesus aside, the rabbi, the teacher, and rebuke him? Where is he coming from? Well, the only answer I can see is that Peter had an agenda. Peter's agenda was the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to take everything that was wrong in society, and he was going to make it right. He was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Israel would be its own country and be able to spread the glory of God around the earth. That was Peter's agenda. Obviously, if that was Peter's agenda, he read it in the Old Testament Scriptures, it must be God's agenda. So he he meets Jesus. He begins to follow him, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. Well, wait a second. That doesn't fit my agenda. And how many times do you and I come to Christ and we've got an agenda too? But see, what Peter didn't understand is Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. When he comes and says, this is my agenda, it's not time for you and I to take our agenda and try to put it on his. See, one of the things about being a disciple of Jesus Christ when it comes down is it comes down to priority. We're using that word. Because when you have an agenda, how many times have you ever had conflicting agendas? Okay, right? I don't know about you. I know what kind of person you are or kind of your personal way you live your life. But for me personally, I always have conflicting agendas because I'm always trying to do three things at the same time. Okay? So like, if you ever see me, I look like I'm preoccupied. I'm thinking about the three things I need to do next, okay? So sometimes uh, Heather will give me a hard time about this, my wife, because she'll say, uh, so what, uh, where are you going? And I'll say, well, I'm going to go do this. She says, well, I thought you said you were just going to go do that. I said, well, I am. I'm going to do it both at the same time. How many of you know that's not possible? Okay? Like we all talk about multitasking and I'm a multitasker, which just means you do several things poorly at the same time. <laughs> right? Isn't that what multitasking is all about, right? So you think about it. <laughs> When you have, if you have an agenda, right, and then all of a sudden there's another agenda that comes up, they can't both be the number one priority at the same time, right? I mean, maybe you can walk and chew gum at the same time. God bless you. But for me, I've got to kind of do one thing at a time if I'm going to do it well. Because what's the most important thing should come first, right? So let's say I would like to go, I come home from work, I would like to relax, but someone else in my family needs some help with something. What's my agenda? Well, I started off the night with my agenda, but now someone else's agenda comes in there. Or I come home from work, and Heather's got her agenda, what she needs to accomplish, and I come in and go, I'm hungry, where's the food? You know, or she comes in from her class and says, did you make any dinner? Anyone, ever, anyone track with me on any of these things? Ever happened to you? Okay, right? Because sometimes this, this thing about food becomes really important. I don't know what, you, I don't know what your vices are, but I, I like to eat. And so uh, one of the things that happens sometimes I'll realize is I can't accomplish anything until I have some food first. Does that happen to anybody else? Right? And obviously you eat and you go, oh, okay, now I can think clearly. I can get things accomplished. I can do what I need to do. Okay? Because prioritization is really critical to getting things done. When you and I, many of us, I know that when we wake up in the morning, one of the first things we do, we might spend our time with the Lord. We might get something to eat. But we have time somewhere in that beginning part of the day where we prioritize what the day is going to include. Some of us may even do it the night before. It's that important, okay? Prioritization. Peter had an agenda of what he wanted Jesus Christ to do and to be. 
And when Jesus came and said, my agenda is a little different from that, Peter got really angry. Somehow, in some way, this shows us that Peter expected Jesus to be the means to accomplish Peter's agenda. Or Peter had his agenda, and somehow Jesus Christ was added on to his agenda. And folks, what Jesus is saying in this passage, very clear to us today, is that Jesus Christ is not an add-on or an accessory to your agenda or mine. He does not exist in our life just to accomplish what we want to accomplish. He has to have the priority. We're going to ask the question, who is Jesus to me? If we say, okay, God, uh, I know you've said this and this and this, and I'll obey you if, I'll obey you if I understand what you're saying. If we say that to the Lord, what are we saying? We're saying our understanding is king. Our understanding is the priority, and I'm only going to do what I understand. So who's in charge there, Jesus or me? If I just say to Jesus, Jesus, I'll do whatever you ask if I agree. Who's in charge? My will, not his. Do you see how this works? Every day, you and I are faced with situations and choices, how we're going to respond to something that negative that happens to us, how we're going to think about somebody else, And every time those situations come up, we have to make a choice of who has the priority here. Does Stuart get to do what Stuart wants to do? Or do I have to first say, Jesus, what is your priority? What is your agenda here? What do you want? What is your will? Is this making any sense at all? I hope it is. You know, there are times in life where when we have an authority figure in our life, we we try to negotiate. Anyone ever tried to negotiate with your boss? Boss says, calls you in, Stuart, I want you to do thus and so. And we don't want to do thus and so. <laughs> so you go, oh, okay, well, you know, um, okay, uh, hey, would it be okay if, uh, if Mary helped me with that project? Uh, she's really good at this and that, and it would really be good if we worked on it together. We negotiate, right? Or we say, oh, hey, you know, I, I mean, I could do that for you, boss, but, but, uh, but wouldn't this other project be a bigger priority to you? We, we negotiate. We try to, hey, here's our will, and here's the boss's will, and we try to negotiate. Or maybe we're in school, and the teacher wants us to do something, and the students go, oh, no, don't give us any homework. We're not here to learn. Um, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just natural. That's a human nature, isn't it? Where authority tries to impose something, and we try to negotiate. Unless you're in the military, I don't, appreciate, I don't suggest that would be a negotiation. doesn't always work. But um, <laughs> if you're not, we try to negotiate. And the thing is, is that Jesus Christ is not just a a teacher. He's not just a boss or some kind of authority figure like that. Jesus Christ is our king, or he's not. I mean, when you have a king, think about it. Now, we don't live in a kingdom. We live in democracy. So this king idea is kind of a little foreign to us. But think about it. This was what the situation was in the first century. When you had a king, you didn't come to the king and negotiate what you wanted and what they wanted, all right? Your job as a subject of the king was to come to the king, bow down and say, what do you want, king? What is your will? Okay? And the king told you what to do. Well, Jesus is either your king. Sometimes we use the word Lord. We'll say, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Okay? It's really the same thing, though. Lord and king, it's the same kind of idea. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of my life? And not just the spiritual parts of my life. Every part of my life. 
my attitudes, my motives, my actions, my words, every part of my behavior. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of my money? Who's in charge of my career? Who's in charge of my family? Who's in charge? Is he Lord of all? Or is he Lord of some? Isn't that the question? But here's the good news. Jesus Christ isn't just a king. He's a king who went to a cross. He's not just a king who came to lord over us or to tell us what to do. He's a king. He's the king who came to serve us. The one who came and died for us, who died in our place. We, we just celebrated communion. We sang about it. We prayed about it. We thought about it. We took communion as a recognition of all that he's done for us. Could we say this morning that he's a king who could be trusted? He's a king who wants good things for our lives. What he has for us in his word, what he has for us in our lives, he's got a good intention, a good purpose, a good will for us. A little later in Luke chapter 9, we come across three people who have this kind of encounter with Jesus. Who is he to them? Is he king? Is he Lord? Who is he? Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds great, doesn't it? But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Interesting answer, isn't it? He said to another person, Come, follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another interesting answer Jesus gives. Another said, Lord, yes, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I've got to tell you, what in the world is going on here? I mean, that's, that's pretty tough stuff he's saying to these three people. Each one of them says to him, yes, I will follow you. Some of them seem actually quite eager to do so. But each time, Jesus has something really kind of harsh, kind of tough to them. What in the world is going on here? Well, I think the bottom line we can say after we read those passages, Jesus doesn't take being a disciple lightly. It's not a casual thing to him, is it? He's obviously meaning more than, oh, take your normal life and just add me on to it. Let's see what he's saying here. Jesus' reply might be harsh at first glance. It might be surprising. But if we think about it, what is he really saying? He's saying there can't be any but first. But first, let me go bury. First, let me go say goodbye. First, let me find a place to stay. Jesus says there's only one first, and I'm the first. I've got to be first. Now, notice, we're not told what happened to any of these three guys. They might have said, okay, and continued on and been a follower of him. We don't know. They might have turned and went away like the rich young ruler did. We don't know. But it's an encouragement to us today that we're not told what happened to them. They're just confronted with the same thing that you and I are confronted with today. Who is Jesus to you? Is he first? Is he 1A, 1B? Two, level priority seven. Where is he at in our lives? If we'll make Jesus our first and highest priority in our hearts, then we're going to find something that's beyond what we've ever wanted and what we've ever needed. We didn't even know we needed this. Point number two, the second sign of being an authentic disciple. We not only, we first make him our priority, but second, we receive a new identity. Receive a new identity, who I am. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Now this one starts off, Sounding like this is really hard stuff, and it is. 
But this isn't exactly what it seems to be at first glance. You've got to walk with me on this. When you were younger, how many people ever played the game Follow the Leader? Anyone ever played? Anyone seen anyone play the Follow the Leader? Okay, are you aware of the concept? All right, okay. Is that everybody kind of? Okay. Oh, in case, not all of you responded even to that. So I'll explain, okay? There's one basic principle to follow the leader. There's someone who's the leader. Now, how they get to become the leader, that's a separate story. We'll talk about that some other time. Okay. But someone's the leader, right? And everybody else are the followers. Maybe there's one, maybe there's more. And so what the people who are following do is they do whatever the leader does, right? So they only go where the, fo- the leader goes. Is everyone with me? I hope that was comprehensive. All right. That's the only principle to follow the leader. That's all Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're going to be my follower, you have to go where I go. You've got to do what I do. Oh, is, is, is that all, Jesus? Okay, so we've got to unpack that a little bit more, don't we? <laughs> all right. So Jesus says, he's got to be your priority. And then he says, you've got to suffer. You've got to willing to take up your cross every day. Now, as Christians, the idea of the cross has become kind of very spiritual to us. But what is a cross? It's an instrument of execution. So a lot of times, I like to think about this. Someday, uh, I'd like to, to come up with a new line of jewelry. And instead of like chains with little crosses on it, it'd be a little picture of an electric chair. Right? And I could wear that around and people go, hey, that's a great piece of jewelry you have there, Stuart. It's a chair? And I said, no, it's a, it's a special kind of chair. It's an electric chair. Why in the world does Pastor Stewart want to walk around with a little electric chair around his neck? Because I want to be reminded every day that Jesus says, die to yourself, Stuart. Take up your cross every day. And when I think about the cross, I can get so spiritual about it. Oh, the cross, the old rugged cross. It's a place where people go to die. I mean, in the old days, maybe it would have been even better, like, you know, if you think about the 1700s or something, to say, to go to the stake. You know, people were burned at the stake. So Jesus could say, uh, you know, deny yourself and, and go to the stake every day and be burned. That's an alternative. Or, you know, the Stuart translation of the Bible, every day, uh, go sit in the electric chair and throw the switch. Okay, you might think I'm weird. Don't laugh that hard. But isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Am I misinterpreting it? Am I misreading it? What Jesus is saying is, if he is your priority, then the worst thing that could happen to you in your life, what's the worst thing? We all know what it is. D-E-A-T-H. We are scared to die. Nobody wants to die. I don't want to die. I've been in situations where the thought has crossed my mind. I could die here. I've been in car accidents. I've stood on the edge of tall buildings. I've been on airplanes in great turbulence. Uh, I mean, think about it. All of us have been, you ever been in a situation where you wanted to thought cross your mind? I could die here, right? And what is our first thought after that? How am I going to not die here? Right? Is there anything I can do about this? And it's so helpless when you can't. You know, you're on the airplane and you're like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, you know, okay. Maybe you don't care about that, but that's one of mine. Uh, if we think about this, nobody wants to die. So why is Jesus telling us, if you want to follow me, you've got to die? 
I mean, does he want any disciples? <laughs> What's going on? He's obviously going for a deeper spiritual truth, but let's just go at the base level here. Every person is not wanting to die. One of the signs that someone's not doing well is we know they start talking about not wanting to live. We know there's something wrong and the intervention's needed. But normal human existence is we don't want to die. So why is Jesus asking us to die every day? Because one of the truths that's here is if the scariest thing that could ever happen to you and I all of a sudden because of what Jesus Christ done on the cross is transformed, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know what happens after death. I've never been there. But I do know this, that if I'm, in, if I'm in Jesus Christ, if I've made him my Lord and my Savior, to leave this life means I'm going to be with him. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to see him face to face. We'll be in a place where there is no crying, where there is no sickness where there is no injustice and a place where all is as it should be to be in the presence of the Lord forever. If you and I know Jesus Christ, that is our destiny. So if that's the case, if we're with him, if we're his follower, to die every day to ourself is no longer scary because even the worst thing that could happen to us has been transformed by God into something that is wonderful forevermore. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he conquered death. He exposed, he defeated the power of death. And you and I, if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, if we walk with him, There'll be times we fail. He'll pick us up. He'll forgive us. He'll dust us off. And he says, I'm with you. Let's keep walking in the right direction. If we'll do that every step of every day for the rest of our lives, guess what the Bible tells us? Our identity is we are now sons and daughters of God. That God himself has come and said, I want to be your friend. Jesus says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. It's not just some song we sing, I am a friend of God. It's a truth. I don't know what famous or wonderful people that you know, but you know God, the creator of the heaven and earth. You know God, who sent his son to take your place. What kind of identity? This life, we try to build our identity, ourself, on so many things. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word Jesus used here for life, whoever wants to save his life, is the Greek word psyche. We get the word psychology from it, okay? The word psyche means your identity, your personality. It's what makes you distinct and valuable, your identity there. Now, Jesus is not saying some kind of thing, I want you to lose your identity so you don't have an identity. Jesus, in fact, wants us not to lose ourselves. He wants to find ourselves. That's what his goal is for us. But what he's saying here is don't build your identity by anything in this world. 
In verse 37, he says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself, your psyche, lost or destroyed? Every culture on the face of this planet says to you and I, if we will do certain things and perform in certain ways, then we'll be a valuable person. Traditional cultures, uh, uh, if you study those uh, in the past, they'd say you're, you're valuable if you're part of a family and your identity comes from your family. And if you don't have a family, you don't have identity. That's what traditional cultures say. We live today in America in a very, very individualistic culture that says you have value if you can gain success, which can be defined lots of different ways, but usually includes some combination of money or fame or uh, things, accomplishing, uh, accumulating things, right? Am I, am I right? Okay. Our culture says to us, how do I know that I'm a valuable person? Because I've got this, or I've done that, or I'm known by these people. And Jesus Christ comes to us and says something very different. Because Jesus knows at the core, if the way that you and I have found our identity and build our identity is based on this relationship I have, what if that person makes a decision that destroys that relationship? If my identity is built on my career, what happens if if there's some technological advance that destroys the skill I have and I can no longer make money doing that anymore? Or what if I lose my health and I can't work anymore? Where am I then if my identity is based on my career or my job? What do I do if my identity is based on my finances? What if my finances start going down? Where's my identity then? Is this tracking with anybody here? Are you, are you understanding? This is the trap that you and I are constantly fighting against the drag of this, that this world is saying to us. That you have to do this and that and this and that or you're not anybody. Uh, sometimes I use this uh, tool on, on the computer or on my phone. That's a very, it can be a, very, a tool that can be used for evil or it can be used for good. It's called Facebook. Anyone ever use that tool? Facebook can be wonderful. It can be a great way to share things and see what's going on with people. But I realized, and, and we talked about this in church one time not too long ago, that sometimes the idea comes that we start comparing ourselves to people we know. Do you know that not very many people put all their horrible stuff on Facebook? I mean, they might tell you if they're in need, please pray. Christians do that. But in general, on Facebook, you don't put, I had the worst day of my life and I look ugly. Here's a picture. It's all the good stuff, right? So you see all the good stuff. You don't see the hard things. And after a while, it gives us a view of reality. At least, it, I don't know if this does it. This is me talking, okay? Maybe this does it for you. And you start looking, and you go, oh, well, that person's attained that, and this person's achieved that. And boy, I haven't achieved that, and I haven't achieved this. Oh, I must not be worth anything. Does anyone else ever feel that way? We live in a performance-based culture that's saying, this is how you get your life. This is how you know you've had a good life. This is how you, your psyche is strengthened because you've gained this, this, and this, this. And i got to tell you, folks, Jesus Christ did not come and die on the cross for you and I to get rid of that performance-based identity and replace it with another one that says, okay, now you're going to gain your meaning and identity by performing in church. And so you're going to do this more, and you're going to do that. That's not what it's about. Do you hear me? Being a Christian is not about what you and I do. We don't become better Christians by doing more of this and more of that. We do those things because they're good for us. And as we do them, they draw us closer to God and our character and nature aligns with His. Do you see the difference? B, 
being a Christian, being a follower, being a disciple is not what you and I can attain in our own efforts. Whoever tries to save his life that way is going to lose it, Jesus says. Jesus says something real different. He says, I want to give you a radical new way that's never existed before. Lose your old self. Lose your old identity. It's not working anyways. I mean, think about it. Okay. One of the things that just drives me absolutely crazy is when I get caught in the trap of thinking someone has attained. Okay, so like, I, I like football. I watched a football game yesterday. It ended well for me. That's all I'm going to say. But if you think about it, we put athletes up on these, on these pedestals, right? We look up to them. Some of them make a lot of money. All of them become very well-known at some level, right? I mean, even if, the, even, if the, even if a guy in the practice squad of the Ravens walked in here today, we would think they were a celebrity. They don't even play. Right? But is anyone tracking with me on this? Are you, are you with me? Okay. Uh, actors. Musicians. Right? We, we put, we, how messed up are many of these people's lives? They've attained, but they're unhappy. I was, my wife and I were watching a movie the other day, and there was, there was a woman in the movie. She had everything. She had wealth. She had good looks. She had friends everywhere, and she was empty. And I thought about it. I thought, how true that is for so many people. If we try to build our foundation, our, our identity on the wrong things, it will never satisfy us. The only person in the universe who can satisfy our hearts is Jesus Christ. He accepts us just the way we are, warts and all. All of the things we've ever done, all the wrong things, all the bad things, all the things that we regret. Think about all, no, don't think about all the things you regret. But you know what I mean? <laughs> when we do think about those things, he doesn't care. He went to the cross to wipe away all of those things and says, I love you and I accept you. Come in. Lay aside all that old stinking identity that didn't work anyways and come in and I'm going to give you a new identity as my child. And I'm going to give you a purpose. All right, let's go to our third point. The third sign of an authentic disciple is a transformed life. A transformed life. A follower of Christ asks the question, why am I here? What does it mean to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ? C.S. Lewis says this, the more we can get ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. If we're going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, we've got to understand why we're here. Okay, we've set him as the priority. He is our Lord, who in his mercy, Paul talks about the mercy he received as a horrible, he thought he was a righteous person and realized he was someone who needed a Savior. Paul made him his Savior. He made him his Lord. Many of us have done that. And then we've received a new identity now as a son, a daughter, a child of God. But there's a purpose of experiencing a transformed life, answering that question, why I'm here. Think about what we have in Jesus Christ. The last verse of the passage we read, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see this kingdom of God. Now you've got to know, Jesus is not saying, 
I'm going to return again before some of these people die. That's what some people think. He's saying something along the lines of this. I started off in weakness. I've come in humility. I was born. He was born in a major. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He's telling these people. He's out there. He's teaching. He's giving. But he's got nothing uh, physical to show for. He doesn't have a lot of things. He's come. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be put into a borrowed tomb. But that's not how the kingdom of God ends. That's just how it begins. The kingdom of God begins, yes, it looks like it begins with weakness. If I look at the world today, there seem to be a lot of forces arrayed against good. There's a lot of evil in the world, isn't there? Let's not pretend otherwise. Let's not get upset about it. Let's recognize there always has been a lot of evil in the world. But God is good, and God's kingdom is coming. And in fact, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is already in us. He's already working through us. When we talked about Dr. King, God's kingdom worked through him in a mighty way. It begins with admitting we need a Savior, not just a moral example. We need someone to fulfill all the requirements and pay for our sins. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 1.13, I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Can I just stop and say something real quick before we go on? There are people in the world today who do and say things that are not right. As believers, our first response cannot be to get angry with them. They're acting in ignorance and unbelief. They need a Savior. I don't care what your political persuasion is or who you're going to vote for. Well, I, mean, I do care, but you know what I'm saying? All right? Whatever you, you and your conscience before the Lord, what you need to do. But can we recognize that everyone who runs for political office needs a Savior? That all of us, no matter who we are, have some area of our heart that's ignorant? Some area where we're walking in unbelief and we need to give those things to the Lord? There are people that I don't need to get angry even at the barbarians of ISIS. People who do things in the name of their God that are horrible. They need a Savior. People need to know Jesus. Their lives will be transformed. Paul was a persecutor of Christians and he killed many, many Christians. But God had mercy on him. Oh, how generous, Paul says. How gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that came from Christ Jesus. He tells Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me. Folks, every time we get mad at someone, we forget I was someone who needed mercy. God helped me to give mercy to others. The good news of the message of Jesus is no matter what your identity has been, or if you meet somebody, it doesn't matter what their identity is today. Their identity may be wrapped up in all of the wrong things. It doesn't matter to God. No matter what our identity has been, whatever false foundation we've tried to build our lives on, Jesus Christ has come and offers to fill our hearts with himself. God has had mercy on us. He offers to take our lives and transform us 
And every day we can walk closer to Him and we come in relationship again with Him and He transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. He's working to transform us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Do you want to know God's will today for your life? Do you really want to know His will? If He's, his, if he's our Lord, then we definitely want His will, and we want it to happen. At the end of talking about this same passage of Scripture, C.S. Lewis says, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours anyways. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else you thought you wanted will be thrown in. That's what Jesus promises for us today. As our worship team comes and helps us to close this service, I want to ask you this question. Who is Jesus Christ in your life today? For some of us, perhaps you've never crossed that line and made that decision to say, I'm going to make Jesus Christ my Savior. I need what He's done for me. If that's you today, you can begin the journey of following Him, allowing Him to come into your heart, to work in your life and every part of your heart and your mind and your soul. For all of us today, we've got three things we can look at, we can measure. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to stand in just a moment. We're going we're gonna to be led in a song. We're going to have a moment to reflect. But ask yourself this, who is Jesus to me today? Is he my number one priority in every part of my heart? Am I really trying to find my identity in him, or do I keep tending back to trying to find my identity in things or approval of others? And today, am I walking in a way that's going to bring transformation as I'm walking with Jesus? Am I really walking with him today? If we can stand right now, I'd like to pray with you. First, if you're someone who's never made that decision to follow Christ, I'd like to pray with you. Just All you have to do while you're there in your chair is just standing there is just pray this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads. Jesus Christ, I come to you now and I ask you to take what you've done on the cross and apply it to my life. I recognize I need you. I need someone to save me. I can, I'm not good in my own self. I need you and your forgiveness. Please come into my life and make me a new person. I promise I desire to follow you, but God, I need your help. Come into my heart right now, Lord, and make me a new person. I recognize my will is not enough. I'll never be able to make the right choice every day. So God, I give myself to you, and I say, I will follow you. You are my priority. You are my Lord. You are my Savior.
I desire to be your child today. And I pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. If that's you today, you've made a very important first step. I'd encourage you to tell someone about it. You can take your, your Connect card that was in your bulletin and fill that out and, and put that in the box or give it to someone at the Welcome Center today. Tell one of the pastors. But today, if you've already made the decision sometime in the past, as you were to look, if you were to say, God, I, I want to answer that question the right way, who you are to me today, could we just take a moment and, 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 and allow the Lord to put his spotlight into every part of our heart, every nook and cranny? I got to tell you, this is one of the hardest weeks of my life. Because I had, to, I had to preach the sermon today. I had to read this scripture to you. I had to say, Lord, over and over through the week, Lord, search my heart. Keep my motives pure. Keep my eyes where they need to be. Keep my thoughts on you. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't something that comes natural. No one ever arrives in this life to where we don't have to make these things. That's why Jesus says, do this every day. Who is your priority? Where are you finding your identity? Are you walking to be transformed today?